Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Mark Mattis. Mark is professor of philosophy and religion at Grandview University. He's authored, edited, or translated a number of books and is an associate editor of the Dictionary of Luther and the Lutheran Tradition. His most recent book is Martin Luther's Theology of Beauty, a reappraisal. It's a great book about Luther, his understanding of beauty, and what it means for us today. We had a great conversation about it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I give you Mark Mattis. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. I'm really delighted to be with you on your podcast. You are a, a professor at Grand View University in Iowa. Have they have they been competitive basketball wise before? Uh, actually, wrestling and football are our strengths here. Okay. All right. So they are. Uh, so, and this is. Uh, is this a religiously affiliated school? Yeah. This is uh, ELCA. Yeah, it's it's um, the ELCA. I I don't know. Maybe they have something like, like twenty seven colleges, and this is one of the colleges um, connected with it. It's if you've ever listened to Garrison Keillor, he talks about the happy Lutherans and the sad Lutherans. That's a for real thing. This is the happy Lutherans. It was Danish people that started this. What made them happy a hundred some years ago is uh, they believed in dancing, whereas the sad Danes didn't. Uh, they thought dancing was okay. They thought if you were of age, having a drink would be okay, provided you didn't get drunk. Um, so, yeah, the, the, it's a for real thing, the happy Lutherans and the sad Lutherans. The fun Lutherans. The fun Lutherans. It was the fun Lutherans that started Grand. And I would guess that a Lutheran school does better than, say, your Anabaptist in football and wrestling. I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. you've written a great book, Martin, the- Martin Luther's Theology of Beauty, a reappraisal. Now, it's interesting. You know that, that people have written about Luther and his interest in music, and there's been some peripheral work around this topic. But really, no, this is not, there's not much written specifically on Luther's own aesthetic, right? I mean, this is, this is an, an area of scholarship that's not very densely populated. No, not at all. And if it hadn't been in all the work that I did with the theology of Oswald Bayer, Bayer is a uh, theologian uh, retired from Tübingen in Germany. Uh, Bayer would emphasize against the father of Protestant liberalism, Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher would talk about a sense and taste for the infinite. And so Bayer responds with a sense and a taste for the finite. That is that God comes to us in very tangible ways because God wants to give us something to grasp onto as we believe his promise. So uh, it's a deeply embodied sacramental approach, and it's very much against classical Protestant liberalism. And, and is this, I mean, also sort of, you know, I'm thinking of a book by Gerhard Forda, Where God Meets Man, mm-hmm. in, in the sense of that part of, is part of the human condition or, or, or the, the problem of the human condition for someone like Luther, the fact that as creatures, we can't seem to love our limits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, if, especially for his book, Where God Meets Man, because um, as, as God works on us through law and in terms of breaking down our self-centeredness, our pride, our desire to be our own gods for ourselves, and uh, that makes us to be humble and that we can actually have no other 
other way to go other than trusting in God's mercy given to us in Jesus Christ. But from Ferdy's perspective, to use a kind of psychological language that breaks down our defenses, that closes us off from the world. And so with our defenses being broken down, we can be more open to the world as God's gift, as God's creation, as God's goodness, uh, as ways that, that, that God is providing for us in community. And in all things, uh, God's incredibly generous. The old Adam and Eve just isn't open to that generosity because they all want to base things on merit. It's interesting. There's this Christian psychiatrist. He's a blessed memory now, Frank Lake. Uh, he wrote a, like a thousand page book called Clinical Theology. We're sort of integrating theology and, and psychiatry. And he loves Luther. It, it, but there's a section about like depression and sleep. And he has this these two columns where... If in zero to two, you get the message that acceptance is a gift, then with all your libidinal rage and this and all that, that that you actually learn to accept yourself because you're accepted by your source person. But if you learn that that acceptance is reward, then then you're psychologically, it's going to be slow going and hard going. And it seems like a... A psychological echo of, of, of the doctrine of justification, of Luther's yes, you know, crown jewel. That, that yeah. If you just look at what we know about human development right now, it mm-hmm. seems to bear out a lot of what Luther found in, say, St. Paul. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah, I, 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 there has to be a lot of truth to that, uh, a psychological analogy with, with uh, the doctrine. And, if I, and I've heard it said, this, and this might be a kind of Lutheran character, uh, you know, uh, caricature or truism, but— I've heard some preachers say to remember the way to remember the difference between law and gospel is law says do and the gospel says done. You know, it's 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 the promise. And it seems to me that at the heart of your description of Luther's sense of beauty, right, the right kind of beauty says done, but the wrong kind of approach to beauty says do. Like you know, you know, climb up the chain of being or some sort of existential ladder or whatever. Whether it's in medieval or modern parlance, that, that any sort of sense of beauty that that has you climbing up versus you just receiving what's already there. It really goes off the rails. Yeah. And there's quite a bit in the book that uh, contrasts Luther with some of the views of beauty from the middle ages, which was exactly as you indicate a kind of ladder because it emphasized proportion, light and perfection. Um, And so when you, you apply these things as something that we have to accumulate, in order for us to become beautiful before God, then uh, it just can become a nightmare and wreck havoc in any kind of spiritual life. It just kind of brings us uh, to uh, to our end. Um, but um, uh, Jesus Himself, as He's wasted by sinners on the cross, all of us. Uh, there's He is the one who is without form or comeliness. And yet, because uh, he is God's gift of mercy, bearing all of our sins, our guilt and our shame, and putting it all in a tomb where God himself can never find it again, uh, Jesus Christ is beautiful because he is God's gift of generosity and love that refuses to let sin and death mark our lives. Our lives are instead marked by resurrection, by new life, by God's victory over death given to us as a gift. And again, it's something that, that sinners receive with joy. It, it's it, the path of law uh, just brings us uh, to our end. So the, the, the good news of the gospel is being embraced by this, this generosity of love given to us in Christ. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it seems that what you're arguing, right, is that much like if you, if you are trying to love 
hurts your neighbor in order to feel good about yourself, you're never really loving your neighbor, right? Yeah. It, this yeah. is like the freedom of a Christian. Right. When you really get grace, you're Lord of all and servant yeah. of all. But if it's really about you and your own self-justification, you're, 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 you're loving self right. when you're loving neighbor, as opposed to when you really know that you're accepted by the justifying word of, uh, of grace and, and that you're united to Christ, when then you really are free to like not think less of yourself, but think of yourself less right. <laughs> in some ways. Exactly. And, yeah. and so it seems that the, the, the analogy for beauty is that when you're trying to sort of discover beauty as, and, and grasp after it, as something that makes you your life more meaningful or makes your or shows that you're deceit or to enhance your life you never really accept the beauty that's there because it's always a means to an end mm-hmm. and when your tra- your aesthetic is transformed by by the forgiving grace of god poured out in, in the one that, that that doesn't look beautiful at first right the, right. the crucified one then you actually are, are more free to accept the beauty all around you because you can accept it as a gift instead of using it as a ladder? Well, you could have written the book. I, I, I really appreciate you saying that. That's, that's exactly it. It, it, it. We have a heritage of associating beauty with glory, achievement, perfection, good form. Uh, but what the beauty we receive in the gospel is here is God is running after prodigals uh, and God is perplexing, even shaming elder brothers. And it's all in his effort to reach out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, ultimately to the likes of you and me. And again, I think, as you said uh, so uh, eloquently, is that it opens us up from the inside out to, to, to just accept and receive the beauty that is around us and the beauty that God is making and, and to enjoy it and, and to, to share it. I love the metaphor in Luther's uh, Freedom of a Christian of flow. That that um that there there's a sense that, that that what's happening is is in our sin, our incurvation, being so turned in upon ourselves that this this goodness in creation just gets all damned up. But as this old Adam, old Eve, is being broken down, and a new person who lives solely by faith is reborn, it permits this flow of love to others and appreciation. For creation as God's goodness, as God's gift, and accepting and receiving it as beautiful on its own terms, not as you put it to kind of leapfrog over things uh, on some kind of ladder uh, in, in some kind of system of brownie points. Yeah, I think about that line in in Pretty Woman, right, where they go to the opera, and he says, Richard Gere says to Julia Roberts' character, he says, "The opera, you either you'll love it." when you first see it or you you won't and you may come to appreciate it but you'll never love it but it's so much pressure right like like that you can feel the existential pre- pressure uh and then i love it i love it at the edge she goes i love that i almost peed my pants and the woman goes <laughs> what did she say she said she liked it more than pirates of penzance <laughs> but, but that's the crux right i mean that's the said crux that, that that without this sort of without realizing without the sinner's heart kind of breaking under the law that beauty will just become one other form of terrorizing right so it'll just be one other pressure cooker yeah i agree i and i think that's what luther was reacting against it what i what where this work has been a great benefit to me is that um it was just a hypothesis that there is some kind of view of beauty in luther and uh, because there was really not much of my education that would have pushed that. But once you look for it, it's, it's really there. 
if there is a source uh, from the Middle Ages that, that puts a slant on his view of beauty, it would be from Bernard de Clairvaux. Uh, but Bernard de Clairvaux is really loved by, by Luther, not every aspect of Bernard. He doesn't like Bernard's monasticism. Bernard is also loved by Calvin. Uh, both the great reformers find so much that echoes their view of grace in, uh, in Bernard. But Bernard has this sense, and, and he gets it from his commentary on, on the Song of Songs, um, and in which, in which the, the bride says that she is dark but comely. And so there, there's this sense that, that, um, uh, that we receive through this love of Christ. Christ loves us not because we are so intrinsically beautiful, that's just not there with us as sinners, but, but God's love is creative and makes us to be beautiful in his eyes and gives us uh, this, this, this beauty which in heaven will be perfected. On uh, this life, we walk by faith, not by sight. But Bernard becomes a, a pivotal person, and it's just part of the monastic spirituality that, that Bernard had. But Bernard himself is pushing grace, not this proportion, uh, not this kind of perfection uh, or light that, that, say, you get in Thomas Aquinas. You know, I was really interested, too. Early in the book, you have, you have a section on Luther and philosophy. And you... It's a very good, subtle chapter because I think Luther just often gets lumped with the nominalists who sort of, you know, as the medieval synthesis is 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 dissolving, right? You know, as the, as the relationship between faith and reason is kind of, it, it, you know, come, becomes to a crisis point. You've got the realists, right, uh, who are, you know, of different kinds, whether Aristotelian or more Platonic, think that think that universal, like nature's universal, these things really kind of exist, and anomalous that are more skeptical. But you say that Luther uh, really has his own relationship to both of these, because it seems like what, as I read that chapter, it seemed like that Luther's problem with both approaches is that neither of them are are Christologically driven. Yes. That, 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 yes. that while well, one, one may... Um, be a theology of glory of uh, of one kind, the realist, but the nominalist. It seems the it's the arbitrariness, right? It, yeah. it, it, it's yeah. the kind of it's it's not actually taking yeah. seriously the, the the concrete promise centered in Christ, but it becomes a little too abstract. Yeah, well, they both become theologies of glory, and and you're right. Luther is so I I, uh, I resist just the lumping of Luther into nominalism because the usual trajectory. Uh, especially from our our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, is oh look at uh, Luther is the forerunner of secularism, and I really resist that. I I I first of all I don't believe it. I don't believe that the uh, the, the the magisterial reformers are the forerunners of secularism. I think this is really unfair on their part, and if they're absolutely convinced that nominalism which largely comes out of the Franciscan tradition, uh, is, 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 is creates secularism, then they really have to blame their own Catholicism for it. Um, but part of, part of Luther is deeply indebted to nominalism, especially in the sense that, that uh, it's not just that, that uh, words arbitrarily uh, are, are used to describe things, but I think nominalism has a kind of fluidity or flexibility in it where where the word actually does give the identity to the thing, or at least that's the way Luther takes it. 
where he is deeply not nominalist, at least in, in as it develops any kind of secular forms, is God is never absent from the world. That is, you don't have any kind of disenchantment as you get in Box Beva. That 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 is God is deeply masked in the world at all times. And usually this masking in, in Luther is is often comes across in some kind of sinister way almost. That is that, that God is prowling or lurking against the sinner to to bring the sinner down, if you will, so that he or she is no longer a sinner. But there's also a sense where God is masked in creation. Uh, when Luther talks about uh, the, su- the sustenance provided from, from the mother's breast to, to the child, God is also masked in care and providence and sustenance in creation. Uh, so the masking comes in more than just one format. It, it isn't just a, a negative kind of thing, although it is indeed that. But you're right. I really resist. Um, I resist lumping Luther as a nominalist. That's. I, I don't think it's fair to him. Um, I, I think Luther walked very free with respect to philosophy, far freer than, say, a, a Thomas Aquinas uh, does. That has is so uh, so concerned to baptize Aristotle. Uh, Luther never wants to baptize. Uh, well, if there's any concept from Aristotle you can use. It must be baptized first, as he puts it. It must be bathed. It has to be purified. You can do something with philosophical concepts, but you can't just take them at face value because they come with a sense of entelechy that assumes a kind of uh, self-righteousness that, that simply doesn't work for him. Yeah, I mean, I, he, I mean, he and Karl Barth seem to be closer on these, on these points, right, where, where, you, where you have to use philosophy in an ad hoc way. In an ad hoc way. It's always ad hoc. Always and it's reconstructed by the gospel. It, it, and it's it, reconstructed. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's different from Bart is Bart, though, never wants a, a, a kind of, uh, for Bart, everything, it, it, all of theology is a kind of fugue coming from the theme of the gospel. There isn't a sense that that, that uh, he talks in the ending volumes of, of um of his dogmatics about analogies in creation. But there, in Luther, there's a very real sense that, yeah, we do know God in creation. We just don't know that God is for us. But yeah, we, I th- yeah. and is this sort of like, you know, let's say you've, you've betrayed a friend or a lover, and they don't know it, and their loving gaze at you becomes terrifying, mm-hmm. right, and tormenting. And then you, you, until you confess and, and, and reveal the relationship, that... that, that adoring face still doesn't look i mean that person their affection for you is terrorizing yeah. <laughs> i mean yeah. and, and is yeah, this kind of the the amount like the, yeah. the, all of a sudden when you when you break down when in the confession of your poverty as a sinner a need for god the gaze changes and, and the sense of, of of how god is present changes from the hidden one to the revealed one mm-hmm. yeah yeah i yeah i i think that's a beautiful uh that, that's a beautiful example there's, there's something I found so interesting, you know, in, where you talk about his relationship to Plato, Luther's relationship, and you said, you say that in the letters, to, lectures on Jonah, you see this sense of animesis, you know, there's, but it's different than Plato. You don't get it through sort of um, showing that a servant boy can know trigonometry or something like that, mm-hmm. but it's in the sense that there really is a God mm-hmm. and we know it whether we suppress it or not. 
Well, yes, and that wouldn't be, you know, Plato Plato doesn't have a Christian view of God. He lives, it's Christians that have appropriated Plato. But I, I really, yes, I, I would say this, um, and there, here I think is, is, is a difference between Luther and Melanchthon. So, for instance, if you go to Melanchthon's Loki, his theology, uh, communes, um, he offers the, the uh, Thomistic proofs for God's existence. So he appropriates he approaches appropriates a kind of an Aristotelian approach. So uh, the Aristotelian approach doesn't. It, it's like we're going to show you on an empirical kind of basis through an empirical reasoning that God exists. But there's there's a sense in 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 the monastic mystical tradition that Luther came out of. There, there's a sense that everybody knows something of God. You don't have to offer these proofs for it. I'm not trying to pit Luther against. Uh, uh, Melanchthon, or in this case, Lutheran Orthodoxy, that that favors this Thomistic way of operating. Um, but I, I, he is far more like that uh, mystical tradition in that regard. And that's not to say he's a mystic. Uh, everything in theology is enveloped by the word. But he's he's far more similar to that than he is to the Thomistic approach. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Andrew Stravick, and Jennifer Underwood. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You say that with regard to his own theology, you say Luther's view of the knowledge of God, to call it existentialist would be anachronistic. But it is true to say that Luther's perspective is highly experiential without permitting experience to be a source or norm for theology. That's a very subtle statement. Can you unpack that a little bit about how this this has to be something heartfelt, right? But 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 it, you can't, your emotions, your experience can't can't be the norm, but they have to be shaped by the norm, it sounds. It, 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 yeah. And I, I, um, Part of it is is uh, my teachers um, were deeply influenced. Uh, those of us who had our education uh, in Upper Midwest uh, Nordic Lutheranism were taught by people. This would have been in the 1970s and into the 1980s. 
who, when they were young, they had discovered Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard um, had not been appropriated by American Lutherans until, until he was translated into English, of all things. And so uh, because, because Kierkegaard is, is an existentialist, um, it, it, it was a way for uh, many of my teachers, they broke from the patterns of orthodoxy, which had been assumed in upper Midwest Nordic Lutheranism. Um, and so there's a great appreciation for Kierkegaard. I went to St. Olaf College. I have a big Kierkegaard library there. I study with the Kierkegaard experts. I have a great appreciation for Kierkegaard. But my only point is, is that it is anachronistic to look at Luther uh, as an existentialist. Existentialism is a result of, of uh, a break from the thinking of Hegel. Uh, where where uh, Hegel puts it, the whole is the truth, the system is the truth. So Kierkegaard focuses on the individual, and there's a lot of good in that. But the other side of the fence is is that's all way past Luther. But what is quite true uh, with the concern of my teachers is the experiential nature of Luther's theology. It, it's it's from first to last experiential. And it's an experience that's rising out of oratio, meditatio, tentatio. That is out of prayer, meditation, and spiritual attack. So it's, it, it's deeply experiential. But, uh, but I, resist, I resist the notion of it as kind of a proto-existentialism. Uh, I, I just resist that. And it's interesting. Luther, I mean, like Jonathan Edwards, seems to me to be a great religious psychologist and a great student of the affections. I mean, like... You know, now again, the affections can't drive the theology, but 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 the promise of the gospel, right, confronts our affections. Yes, the only the only concern is 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 for Luther, the Christian life is not following a program. If you say, "Oh, let's let's create a manual of how to alter the spiritual affections," so whatever. Uh, iota of di- desire I can find within me, I can exercise it like muscles and strengthen it. It's Luther is a psychologist of, of more where are you at, given that your affections are going to be shaped by the narrative of the scriptures. So it's not so much that we would have a diagnostic manual uh, for the sake of, of, of a program. So it, it's, it's, it, the, the programmatic nature always wants to put us into into a spirituality of uh, of ultimately of, of accumulation and law and um and and so he knows through the monastic system in his experience that doesn't work but but the diagnostic would be the sort of thing well where are you at are you are you under attack uh are you are you in a sense of comfort um where is your where is your spiritual your spiritual life um it, it, it is, is the attack coming more from being accused by the law? Is the attack coming more from an insecurity about where you are in the universe? Does life really have a purpose or meaning behind it? Or is it all just coming across as chaos? So um, that is one might be things that we are guilty. Others might be due to the fact that we're just plain sinful, sinful creatures uh, in in. That, that often experience through our finitude things that are quite chaotic. Uh, how does the gospel need to be given? Does it need to come as forgiveness of sins? Does it need to come as assurance that God is for you, as Romans 8 uh, would push? In either way, whether it be forgiveness or, or simply to secure us. You know, it, it, it's interesting. You 
talk in the book uh, about a little bit about David Bentley Hart and Hans von Balthasar. Uh, and, you know, it, it strikes me that, that von Balthasar, and, and you note this, you know, the great 20th century Catholic thinker and student in front of Karl Barth, I mean, a guy who had a very strong theological aesthetic, which it, it strikes me as not being far from Luther in some ways. Yes. But then, you know, you make this interesting uh, observation that, I mean, to summarize, I'd say like where you say it, you know, where it breaks from Luther is the cross becomes an analogy or a means to an end rather than an end in itself. So, so as, as the cross somehow reveals some inner, inner Trinitarian relationship yeah. of the Father, Son, and Spirit, something that these that that it becomes dangerously close to uh, what is this tendency? I guess Luther says in the Heidelberg uh, disputation that the, theologians of glory always want to look past what's there and through it. Yeah. And if, yeah. you, if you if you want to quibble a little bit with von Balser, that's where it would be, right? On the, the tendency I, I to look through my, a bit. My teacher, Ferdy, is exactly right on, on that score. And I think that is always a problem with theologians. They want a very tidy system. It's not unfair to ask for, for, an, for some tidiness because uh, one is a teacher of the faith. And so one, one, is, one is looking uh, for handlebars uh, in order to help people grow in their faith. But by the same token, I, I think you said it absolutely right, that there is a tendency that, well, we can put roses on the cross or evade the, the experience of the cross that invariably every human being will go through. Every human being will go through at some point. And so we we really, I, I, I think we shouldn't just, we, we need to, we, we, we serve people, we minister to people better when we're really upfront about the experience of the cross, because they will go through it at some point. Yeah, and 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 this is again right that, that as people come to see, you know, that what that there is a beauty in the cross, right? And that, and then they're they're able to see the the beauty of the presence of God even in their heartbreak. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's comfort it's ex post facto, right? After the Easter, it's after resurrection. While you're going through it, the only word is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that clearly is, is the anguish uh, that, that one feels. But ex post facto, the other side, um, one can see how God worked through all of that um, to, to, to bring you to faith. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, as I was reading the book, I was thinking, you talk about beauty and preaching. And I was thinking about somebody like Renee Brene Brown, right? And how 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 her work has been so uh, you know well received in, in in secular and religious circles. And actually, her own work on on shame and vulnerabilities led her back to the church as an adult. But, but it's interesting; she does such a good. I remember hearing her say that everyone has shame, and the problem is the less, and no one wants to talk about it. But the problem is the less you talk about it, the more you have. So it's in, it's only in undoing it, you know, unbinding it. But there's, you know, people find her talk so powerful, but it's weird. It's like a secular echoing of so much of what you, you point out in Luther here. There's a, people find a beauty to this because it's not an ascent. Like it, it, she's, she's not talking about ascent. She's often talking about just uh, accepting who you are, where you are and, 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 and how vulnerable and hard that is. Uh, and yet how, how that can be, uh, really freeing. Uh, and it seems to me that, that, uh, preachers would do well, you know, to study some Luther and a little Brene Brown. Because <laughs> I mean, because you you talk about the need for people for preachers to articulate the beauty of the sinner finding, uh, you know, 
the prodigal father and the yeah. profligate lover. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and how would that, I mean, I, I guess maybe we need to train preachers differently. Well, I, I have a, a sense that we maybe do. Yeah. I, I have a sense we maybe do. I find that all really helpful what you're saying. Yeah. It, uh, I think you can't, uh, what, what, uh, what this author is, is, is talking about is um, uh, our ability to confide. And there, I think we, we have to always do uh, uh, discretion of spirits because you can't confide in everybody. It, it, the, the reason that people don't confide in these things is they know that there's a lot of bullies out there. And uh, you confide your weaknesses, your limitations, or your sore spots, or your shame. It's all used as leverage against you. Uh, people love to gossip. It's a way, it's a kind of social control. And uh, it, 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 um, what I would really like to see is the church be a place of confidentiality. If, if, if there's any sense of a kind of uh, alternative way of living in the, in the world, as a Christian, I would hope that, that uh, we could learn to become more confidential people. That would be the best way to support our brothers and sisters. It, it, part of the reason you're not going to share much about yourself is because you really don't trust the confidentiality of other people out there. If, um, and I think a lot of Christians, unfortunately, uh, aren't willing to take this, this path because having confidentiality is a kind of responsibility. Are you your brother's keeper? Well, yeah. If you hold a confidence, you are keeping their soul in your heart. Uh, and I think that's a very beautiful thing. Uh, I, I think that's something that, that would be great uh, for Christians to grow in. Yeah, and it seems like also when the church becomes a place where you're trying to convince everybody you're living a religious life instead of a hospital for sinners, mm-hmm. then you often, there is no space for vulnerability, right? Because you've got to convince everybody that you're a perfect, you're living this wonderful religious life. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it seems that oftentimes churches reinforce the law yeah. Uh, as a means not of breaking the sinner, but as a way of making the sinner more self-deceived. I think it's especially hard on teens because teens are at a point in their life where they're, they're very fragile. And what they really need is an environment of confidentiality where, where, uh, where they could drop their guard. Uh, and and uh, I was very fortunate. I, when I was young, back in the 70s, I, I, I had such a youth group. Um, and I, I know that's one of the things I grew up in Seattle, Washington, a very secular environment, even back in the 60s and 70s, maybe, maybe only four to six percent of the population had any connection with any kind of church. But I, I feel really fortunate that I had a very strong youth group in the congregation that I grew up in. And uh, I, I think youth especially need this kind of environment of confidentiality that, that you're talking about, because in, in today's world, it's even harder for young people because of Snapchat and, and uh, all the electronic devices that, that is intrusive in, in their lives. You know, I, you talk so well in this book about how the cross, how, how really for Luther, the, the aesthetics are they're cruciform. It's the cross that's the center of beauty and, and teaches it, you know, is the lens through which you see the real beauty, you know, in, in, in the world. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that I, I find sometimes, and this is mostly in, I, I think it's mostly in conservative evangelical circles, that you have people that talk about penal substitution in such a way and, and kind of go on about it in a way that sounds like it's a theology about the cross. Mm-hmm. 
but not a theology of the cross. And it actually sometimes seems to be a theology about the cross. It's really a, a theology of glory incognito. <laughs> yeah, I fear you're right. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I fear you're right. I, I, uh, or it's just a kind of trade. Uh, I think, you know, Jesus paid for my sin. If I, the exchange I have, well, I believe that truth. And the benefit is then I go to heaven. But ironically, that and, and then what the Christian life is about is, well, I get empowerment from God to live a very heroic Christian walk. So I kind of become super Christian. And uh, I, I'm not going to deny that there isn't well-intentioned things in, in all of that, but I think there's a lot of distortions. I think yeah, this this gets back to the psychological thing, right? When you're, you're most healthiest of, uh, as a human being, when you know you're loved and accepted— and when things become ladders, right, which erode your sense of acceptance, you, you you're generally your worst than shadow self, right? I mean, this yeah. is this is it's some of this kind of Christian programming, mm-hmm. uh, maybe inadvertently brings out the worst in us. I hope not, but I fear you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's interesting that that you know you you talk in the book about disenchantment. And how there, you know, you talk about uh, Charles Taylor's work and so on. And, and, and it, you know, Luther has a different relationship to this problem of disenchantment, right? I mean, th- this is that you could, that you could with Luther's lenses see how the problem's been taught, the pro- how the problem's talked about. And, and yeah, this is, but, but the solution would be different than some contemporary thinkers, right? With this living in this modern disenchanted world. Mm-hmm. Well, this is one of my beasts with existentialism is, is the existentialist movement, in my opinion, sells out a, a secular perspective. Uh, I mean, for instance, an example would be would be a Rudolf Bultmann, where you dig for underneath the mythological layers, you, you dig for an existentialist uh, truth, and so you basically assume a highly uh, mechanistic view about the world and a very gnostic view about the self, and and so th- this this is existentialism you get in Bultmann just has sold out the Christian faith uh, in, in its view of, of the cosmos as being all mechanistic and basically godless. God isn't present there. Where would God be found in some kind of deeper truth underneath all the mythology of, of, of the Christian faith? I'm more apt to say, let's demythologize the secular perspective. And let's 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 name it for what it is: is having a highly mythological, not more scientific. It it it's it's not any more scientific than any other faith perspective. Yeah, it's genius as a mythology, right? Is it a mythology that dis, that disguises itself as a non mythology? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so well put, and it has the upper hand. In part, I work in an ELCA institution, which means we're not all on the same boat with respect to the Christian faith. And um, so my mind is a little bit more on, on questions of apologetics and than, than many of my immediate friends and, uh, and colleagues and peers, uh, uh, because I do, I do rub shoulders with a lot of non-Christians. A lot of my students are not Christians. And so I, I really, I, I, I don't like to see uh, the Christian faith um, to, to be uh belittled on, on through a false representation of it um and and nor do i like uh, an approach from this kind of existentialism you get say through a boltmont 
that already sells the farm. I, I don't think by giving over so much turf to a secular perspective that, that Christianity that I, I just don't think that's uh, I don't think that's taking every thought captive to Christ as as Paul puts it. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned apologetics. I, I, I Jordan Peterson, the psychologist, that's kind of the rage right now. Mm-hmm. Wrote this, and he—I mean, my sense is his relationship to the Christian faith is is a sort of hopeful agnosticism. He likes the Bible. He's 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 he thinks it has merit. His own personal faith, you know, he, he is he's got some ambivalence there. But he wrote this piece in the London Times on the significance of Easter, and it was basically the theology of the cross. We're just talking about how incredible. Whether it's secular, people ought not to dismiss this. The reason why this message, you know, is is still resonates is because like this is what. He thinks it's a psychologist's health is dying, you know, embracing your finitude, uncertainty. And, then, and that's where hope comes. It's really beautiful. I'm wondering, is, you know, as Aldous Huxley, Huxley said, the world needs more theological psychologists or maybe psychological theologians. I'm wondering if, if this is sort of the fertile apologetic ground these days where just how much the Christian faith makes sense out of uh, what we know about the human condition uh, that, that, that really that this is the theology of the cross is basically the only way to realistically get through human life. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't aware that uh, Jordan Peterson had written that. I, I will, I'll have to look that up. I, I think what you're saying is really important because all too often psychology itself is, is a substitute form of Christianity, the discipline itself. Now I, I have, Dear colleagues, who this is Nietzsche is right on most things prophetically, right? When he said psychology, we were clearly <laughs> theology. That's why Nietzsche had such a tough life. It's so hard to be that right that, that far yeah, out of your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree. I and that's an aspect of psych- psychology is at its best if it isn't a pretense of Christianity. I uh, I would say I, I know those of us that were deeply affected by the thinking of Gerhard Ferdy. He always appreciated the work of Ernst Becker, The Denial of Death. And we use that book, uh, Denial of Death, in several of our classes, not just in religion classes. But, for instance, we have a course called Philosophy of Human Nature, and, and that becomes a, a very important book. Um, and this, this everything you talked about, both in terms of guilt and shame, are, are uh, uh, Becker brings up in very powerful ways because these are the kind of things that, that we're, we're repressing rather than, than facing. And again, a theology of the cross is helping us to face that. Um, but all in the context, and I think this is stronger than Jordan Peterson, with the promise uh, that, that, um, that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. You know, it, it seems like there are so many people today, so many Thinkers inside the church and outside the church that see this crisis of in late modernity are are the really disintegration and disconnectedness of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it seems like your book commends that that there is an answer to this, and beauty is the heart of it. But the the place where those intersect is in in the crucified God. Mm-hmm. That, that 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 and then again, as you said, on the other side of of Good Friday. You know that you talk about how the theology of the cross has its counterpart. You know, the, the, is with the theology of Easter. But when you go through it, I mean, there's no way around. You know, there's no way to get right to Easter except through the depth of the cross. But it seems like the, this is the way you're arguing that we'd hold these things together. It's mercy, all truth, goodness, beauty. The classic transcendentals are are defined through through the lens of mercy. 
and the mercy is a very concrete form and figure that is that is Jesus Christ. This, this is right. What this is why like Les Miserables is so powerful, right? Where that I mean that's the, that's not a theology about the cross. That's a theology of the cross. Yeah. When when Jean Valjean is pardoned by the spirit, you know, I take the yeah. candlesticks too. Uh, you know, I'm very, you know, and that, I mean that, right. I mean that to you, when, when we receive that, right. Is when yeah. we, all these transcendentals and things are opened up in a cruciform exactly. way. And in, in addition, this whole, I go back to earlier in the conversation about flow because, because the priest absolved, uh, Jean Valjean, it altered the entire future for him so that it, it his life is that becomes that of generosity. Mark, thanks so much for writing this book. It's fabulous. I hope all our listeners get it. Martin Luther's Theology of Beauty. And thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. Well, I'm honored. I have treasured this conversation. It's uh, For me, it's been a very beautiful thing to have this conversation. I'm very grateful for it. Hey, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Mark for coming on the podcast. Please do check out his book, Martin Luther's Theology of Beauty. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.